Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. Today, I'm really excited because we're joined by John Evans, who is the CEO of Beam Therapeutics. So welcome, John. Thank you, Allie. Great to be here. I know you're probably too humble for this, but we're going to do a really quick bio. So by quick wave background on John, he was the Senior Vice President for Corporate Development and Portfolio Leadership at Agios Pharmaceuticals. And also importantly there, John helped lead Alliance with Celgene. He also worked at Infinity Pharmaceuticals, McKinsey, Metamune. We'll get into all of that. John has an MBA in Healthcare Management from Wharton, Master's in Biotechnology from UPenn, and a BA in English from Yale. But most importantly, he is it on Twitter, and he is also a huge poker player, which I guess we will also get into a little bit later on. But we're so excited you're here today. Fantastic. Well, thanks for everything you do on this podcast, and I'm excited to be here. Of course. So firstly, anything I missed or anything interesting that you want to highlight about your background or maybe some of the steps that it took to get you where you are here today? We covered all the important points. It is a strange place to have ended up as originally an English major studying poetry, then getting into biotech, which was a tremendous door opening early in my career. I learned that I loved pharmaceuticals and life sciences and wanted to be a lot closer to that. But even then, I spent about 10 to 15 years in small molecule companies working on oncology, you know, Infinity and then Agios. And so this final turn into gene editing and cell therapy and all the things that we do at Beam has been yet another very interesting twist. But I love it. And I don't think I would ever go back at this point. What I tell everybody is there's really two things. One was the idea of this is the ultimate precision medicine. We know exactly who to treat based on their genetics, and we have a drug that can literally reverse it and turn it back to normal permanently. So the power of that is just undeniable. But then the other piece of it, and this is way better than you get with small molecules, is that it's a platform. These are programmable medicines. And so it'll be hard to do, but once we've done it the first time, we can then rapidly do it again and again with relatively low levels of incremental investment Whereas small molecule, it's amazing and powerful, but you do it once, that's great, but to do it again, you have to basically start from scratch. And so this platform aspect of how many patients we could potentially impact over time has been really motivating to me. And again, it's been nearly five years since I've been a part of helping grow Beam, and I think we're just getting started. So two very important things to highlight on what you just mentioned. One is, super curious to know who your favorite poet is. I am an avid, avid reader. I try to read at least one book a week, which is sometimes challenging given the amount of new academic papers that come out. But I try to read one book a week. So would love a recommendation about maybe some good poetry. Sure. I was sort of a 20th century kind of person. So I really liked Auden and Bishop. And I'd say my favorite was Wallace Stevens. 
Awesome. And another thing you mentioned that I think is good to highlight is the cost decline. So I know we've had some conversations about this, but at ARC, we obviously think about precipitous cost declines and how the technology is going to change the world, but also change the cost landscape. And so I think it's really important to highlight just the idea of this molecule model versus the gene editing model. So it may be expensive for the first go around, but then the cost could and should fall dramatically for every medicine after that. I would even answer in a slightly broader sense that I think you have to think about cost. You also want to think about time, which of course cost is a function of time, but I think that's a different axis risk as well. And clarity when you get line of sight into what you really have. And pretty much on all of those factors, the things that we're doing are better. And they're also more biotech friendly, frankly. And so as an entrepreneur, I have to think about, is this a great fit for building a new biotech company or is this a more challenging area? So in the old world of small molecule, it might take you four years to go from a new target idea to a development candidate, file an IND. And then the clinic usually do just safety. Then maybe you're testing efficacy in phase two, and then you do a controlled trial in phase three, and you don't really know what you have until the end. And then if it's positive, everybody's excited, and then you go into the FDA, you get it filed. But that is a long time to wait for certainty. And the big de-risking event or value inflection point doesn't come until the very end of that long journey. And then you have this other problem that I mentioned, which is then lightning strikes. Adios, we made two drugs pretty quickly, which was really exciting to see happen for leukemia. And they were these precision medicines. We knew who to target, so they went very fast. To do it again, you're starting from scratch. So you go back to the beginning and you start again. So with Beam and these genetic medicine platforms, and particularly CRISPR, every one of those things is better. So basically, we can go from a target idea to a test in cells in literally weeks or a month or something like that. If you have the delivery solved, which is hard, but if you've done that, you can then go from there to a development candidate in reasonably short amount of time, year or so, is plausible. Then, of course, you fire the IND. Now you're in the clinic. Every one of these medicines is a precision medicine. We're going to go straight into patients. We're going to know who to treat. And in phase one, we're going to test not just for safety, but also for potentially efficacy. And so then you get a much earlier data readout from that program. That could be the de-risking event and the value inflection point for that program. It also tells the regulators that you have something interesting. So you're already working with them on a much more accelerated path to approval than with these other programs. So the total time is shorter. You get an earlier de-risking and value inflection. And then you can much more quickly then create programs two, three, four, five, because you just go back to that construct. You just change the guide RNA or you change something about the sequence you're targeting. And now you have program number two and all those same benefits accrue again. So we really think of this as a very attractive platform. That's why we're investing so aggressively in it, because we think that the long-term productivity of it, and frankly, again, the impact we can have on many, many patients is really there. So one thing that I think about too is the efficiency, exactly as you're mentioning, there's obviously an improvement in efficiency, but one of the things that we didn't even really get into is multiplex editing. So if you talk about the benefit of time, um, then you'd imagine that if another company or another technology would need to do edits sequentially, one, from an efficiency point of view, you'll have less cell yield, and so that could be a problem. But then also, doing it sequentially will make you lose time, which, as you mentioned, is a function of cost. And so I think actually one of the things I think is most exciting about when I think about your technology or base editing technology is the idea that you can actually do these multiplex editing, because I think as we get better and better at gene editing, I think we're going to have more and more multiplex editing that's going to be necessary. Agree. So if you think about our system, which we haven't explained much, but I'm sure many in your audience are familiar, you basically have a CRISPR protein which is doing the work. In our case, it's a base editor. So it actually has some different features. It's got a deaminase on it for the edit, 
but it's the guide RNA, it's the short little RNA element that's doing the targeting. And that's the thing that if we just change it out, we have an entirely new medicine. And all we changed was a short RNA sequence that's about 100 bases long, of which 20 of those bases has the address in the genome I want to go to. And then, as you said, in some applications, we're doing this now in cell therapy, we just add an extra guide RNA, or four of them. Now we're going to make simultaneous two or four edits all at once. And all we did was add one extra little element or a few extra elements. All of the rest of it is identical. And now we're editing cells that have two, three, four, or more edits all at once, packing more efficacy and functionality into those cells than could be done before. I actually think that same principle will apply in other contexts, including in vivo. I think as we learn more about biology, how to intervene in pathways, it's going to start to be plausible to not just knock one thing out or fix one thing. Of course, that'll be a lot of what we do at first, but I think ultimately we can think about multiple editing within cells starting to go at more complex biology, polygenic diseases, and many other similar applications. The other place where there's huge efficiencies gained is the obvious one up front, which is this is a one-time therapy. So if you think about this from the patient's perspective, we live in a world where at best you might have the opportunity to get a chronic drug to manage your disease. You're going to take a pill or get a monthly infusion of an antibody or something like that for the rest of your life to control something that is with you forever. And by the way, that has huge cost and expense and burden on the healthcare system. We're going to hopefully be offering a therapeutic regimen that is one time and then you're done. And then you don't have those hospital visits. You don't have those doctor follow-ups and you don't have an expensive pharmaceutical or biologic that you're taking for the rest of your life. So there's almost a systemic effect, I think, to bring costs down, to simplify patients' lives, to simplify physicians' practices as these one-time therapies become more the norm in addition to therapy by therapy basis, how much more effective they can be. I just wanted to show a 3D printed base edit. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So that maybe you can explain, just so maybe this gives context to everything you're saying. Yeah, this is great. So the white blob, for those who can see this, is the CRISPR protein. Okay, it's often Cas9. It can be other types of CRISPR as well. And that's doing the searching of your genome. And the way it searches is that it has in it the yellow sequence, which is the short guide RNA. And that's a little RNA stretch that is held by the white protein. And it's literally going down your genome and it's testing for a match every few bases. And it's looking for a sequence within your genome that matches that yellow sequence. And when it finds it, it actually literally lands on the DNA and opens it up and binds. And so in the darker teal and then the lighter blue, those are the two strands of the DNA that are coming in and they've been opened by the CRISPR and it's matched the yellow strand against one of those DNA strands. And it says, okay, I've got a match. This is good. That's what happens. Then the edit happens. And so in first generation CRISPR, what happens is the white protein itself, after it's bound, cuts. So it has nuclease activity and it creates a double stranded break in the gene. And then the cell will put the pieces back together again, but it does so with some damage. You'll have some scrambling of the gene sequence at the target site. So with base editing, we do it more precisely and we avoid the cutting and that's done with the purple element. And so basically we have turned off the ability of the white CRISPR protein to cut both strands at least. And we've added this deaminase in purple, which is a totally different kind of edit. It's basically a chemical modification where one of those DNA strands will be exposed to the deaminase from the binding. And then the deaminase basically will recognize a single kind of base and will change it. You'll go from A to a G or a C to a T. And then you let go and you've literally chemically modified that base and you didn't ever create the double strand of break. And so that's the big breakthrough with base editing. We get a very precise, very high efficiency edit. It's active in any cell type because we're not reliant on very complicated repair pathways. 
for the edit to occur. And then we avoid the double-stranded break, which is a challenging thing for the cell to manage. And you end up with a lot more changes at the genome level than you would like. What you were talking about too, as a one-time therapy, I wanted to go back to that for a second, because what I think of is when we look at these graphs that companies put out and they say, here's how our drug did in people. I'm probably thinking a little bit right now about the PTR data that we saw from Intellia just a couple weeks ago now. And I started to think about, well, how do I conceptualize what is the threshold for clinical benefit? This was my thinking for Intellia, but it really relates to any drug. And the thought was, okay, well, if something's 93% mean total TTR knockdown versus 88% versus 79%, what does that mean? Like what benefit does the patient get? And what's the threshold that's really important? And then obviously there's other factors, right? Is it subcutaneous? Is it IV? Is it every week? Is it every quarter? But then I started thinking about, okay, well, that's really important. But also the sawtooth graph, it goes up or it goes down, depending on what you want the therapy to do. And then it goes back down, back up, back down, back up. And I think that was kind of the idea when people thought about antibodies versus other drugs. And I think one of the things that is highlighted for me is, well, a gene editing therapy should theoretically just look like a straight line because durability should persist. And so I think it's almost not the efficacy that we need to worry about, meaning total mean TTR knockdown. Part of me thinks, and that's obviously a portion of it, but I think another portion that people aren't talking about as much is for TTR, if it's not curative, and so there will continue to be amyloid plaque buildup if there's a significant increase in serum TTR knockdown. So the question for me is, wouldn't it be better to have it just go through this one-time cure, not only for cost, not only for efficiency in terms of the patient doesn't need to go back to the hospital, go back to the clinic, whatever it is, but also just because the disease can't sneak its way back. I think from an efficiency perspective for the patients and efficacy perspective for the patient, if you're doing a sub-Q injection at home every week, what if you forget one week? Is progress completely out the window at that point? It's a totally accurate point. The word we often use for this is adherence. To chronic medicines. And it's amazing how bad adherence is to chronic medicines. You hear all the time about this with things like heart attack patients. They don't take really all their Lipitor and it absolutely is causing their cholesterol to be higher. And that's absolutely raising their risk of a heart attack eventually. It's hard to focus on it because the heart attack is theoretical. It's far away. Come from a cancer field where patients who have cancer and they're taking these small molecule pills to keep it at bay, the adherence is low. They just forget And this is literally the disease that could kill them. And you just can't even believe it. So I think improvements in convenience and getting to longer and longer lasting effects is absolutely part of getting to better outcomes. And by that rationale, I think it's very clear that a single one-time therapy that has that flat forever effect is very compelling. Think about, I just want to get you to focus on your disease for this week. I want you to make an appointment. We're going to do the therapy. And then you can be as forgetful as you want forever the rest of your life, you've got the benefit. It's not going away. And I think that is very powerful. You probably do need to be competitive on the amount of benefit. I think that's important. And so places like TTR, where you're knocking on the liver, there is a high bar there. And it's a high bar because of the availability of other medicines, right? You've got RNAi that can now twice a year, maybe even once a year, get you that 90% reduction. So I think if gene editing was in the 50% reduction range, maybe that's not as effective or competitive, or at best, it's a combination idea. But that's why I think it's been so exciting that, you know, Intellia gets to 
that higher level of knockout where it's at least competitive with what you're seeing from these other modalities. And that allows you then to get the benefit of this durability and you don't need to worry about adherence. And that I think is going to be compelling for patients. It should lead to better outcomes. Adherence absolutely leads to worse outcomes when it drops off. There are other targets, some of the stuff that we do, for instance, where we don't have to compete with that. Some of our corrections, for instance, there isn't a drug that does that. So we're basically helping a patient go from no disease to some disease. But there are lots of places where editing will go and Intellia is there, base editing will go there as well, where no, we actually want to compete with other existing modalities and they do set a high bar. So we've got to meet that bar in efficacy and then we can win on the frequency and the convenience and the patient friendliness of the regimen. And you know, a little bit on the cost of the system as well when you do the lifetime map. Right. And we actually did that. I think it was in 2018 in our big ideas deck where we talked about it seemed like people were so concerned and rightfully so about gene editing and gene therapy and how high the cost would be. And so we looked at it from a per life year basis and it actually appeared to be cheaper than if you'd have chronic therapy. So completely agree with you on that point. It's not to overlook those concerns because they're real. These will be expensive therapies by definition. There's no other way around that. We need to be creative in how we structure that. So maybe we amortize the costs. Maybe there's some risk sharing just to make sure that the benefit is there if you're going to pay the full amount or something like that. There's lots of ideas out there that I think will be explored. And it creates a logistical challenge. A plan has to suddenly write some very big checks and it's lumpy. And there's a lot of things we need to work through. But I don't think there's any debate in my mind that if you zoom out to that systemic level or a patient's whole life level, that this is going to create value for the system because you're going to take one expensive therapy now, maybe we amortize that payment over four or five years or something like that. And that's instead of taking a lifetime of some other very expensive therapy and or having a lifetime of hospitalizations and medical care required. So the UK, of course, has been famously tough Cancer drugs are very difficult to get through there on pharmacoeconomic basis, but I've seen some of these quality-based estimates out of there on gene therapies, and they're positive. Novartis made a very big case a few years ago for their SMA drug that it had something like a $5 million lifetime benefit in terms of value provided under conservative assumptions, and they're obviously charging two. I do think that will be an important, frankly, tailwind to drive us towards these sorts of therapies, so long as we can solve those logistical, systemic issues around how the payment gets made. And that's all really important to focus on. Another thing that I think comes up a lot besides cost, which is obviously a big one, and obviously the patient experience too, because even when you mentioned that this will save the cost of the hospitalization and other medical care, I always like to highlight that it's also someone's life. And so it also will benefit that patient in terms of not having it. And I know, of course, you feel this exact same way. So just to highlight, but one thing that comes up a lot when we talk about BEAM specifically is the relationship with PRIME. So obviously, prime editing and base editing both originated from Dr. David Liu's lab. And it's interesting, I think, the intersection and how the companies interact and are put in place. There's been some special care, I think, to ensure that the companies are going to maybe you can say play nice together or really work collaboratively. I think you, John, were interim CEO of Prime for a while. I think you're on their board. And I think you have certain parameters put in place so that it continues to be a fruitful relationship. So if you could, I'd love to hear more about that relationship. So I can't help but go back to one thing before I answer the Prime question, because you mentioned the impact on patients and it really triggered a thought, which is we just had some patients in at Beam from the glycogen storage disease community 
just incredible and powerful experience to hear their stories. And one of the things that really comes clear on that is the effect on the families. It really is patients and families. These diseases freeze up the entire experience of the siblings and the parents and just managing it is a constant struggle. And so I think when you made that point about we can't forget the moral and life experience that we give back to the patients, I think the families is right there with them. So Prime, the main conundrum in our industry, if you think about it, is we all want to do innovative technology and then move it forward for patients. The problem is that the technology is constantly changing. There's lots of different things out there and you need so many different things to succeed. It isn't enough to just have an editing tool. You also need the delivery or you need the CRISPR technology or what have you. And so if we don't work at it, we're going to end up in a world where that we have lots of startup companies that have an incredible amount of redundancy in how they invest. They're all going to have to build the same exact things for themselves because it's too cumbersome to do lots of arm's length deals with other people. Because if the editing company wants to deal a deal with the lipid nanoparticle company, they have to come to terms and then you draw that web of all the different interactions you need, then it's just incredibly burdensome. And then you end up with all these companies that are redundantly investing and then they compete with each other and they all, they all go after the exact same indication. And again, a little bit of that is going to happen. And as I always say, competition is great for patients because it will mean that more potentially great medicines get developed and then the best one will win and the patients look at it. But at some point, too much competition is going to be, again, inefficient for us to do the maximum good we can for patients. So with the Prime Deal, it was sort of a creative way to try to solve some of these questions as that technology came along. So we obviously had base editing, and that's kind of a next generation version of CRISPR that came out of lab with David Liu. We also have built all of this delivery technology, CRISPR technology, a whole bunch of the basics that are going to allow us to move this into the clinic. And famously, we've done all of the delivery technologies in parallel. So we have ex vivo programs, have lipid nanoparticles, we have viral vectors. We've built a bunch of that in parallel. So with Prime, new, interesting way to do editing came out of David's lab, and it's different than base editing. For those who don't know it, instead of using a deaminase to do a single base chemical modification, it uses a reverse transcriptase to try to write a short sequence of DNA into a local position. And so we had lots of conversations between David and us about how to optimize this technology moving forward. And we landed on this hybrid model where we have this different company, Prime Medicine, which would take the license to this technology but there'd be a very close relationship with us. So our same investors invested in it. We were the interim management team and got it going. I was the interim CEO and then now I'm still on the board. And then we have a deal. And basically the deal is such that Beam shares all of this delivery technology, CRISPR technology, anything we have that could be useful, know-how and IP. We're literally teams of people helping each other and sharing hard-won wisdom that we've developed. And in return, Beam has exclusive rights to use Prime Editing in basically any space that is similar to what base editors do. And that's exclusive even as to Prime. And so that's really Beam's territory using, using Prime Editing. So that includes any mutation that's similar to what a base editor does, A's to G's and back again, or C's to T's and back again. About 30% of all mutations fall into that bucket. And then also sickle cell disease, the wild type correction which is an A to T change, that's called the transversion. But given that Beam already had two different programs to potentially cure sickle, we thought it made more sense for that to live with Beam as well. And then Prime goes after everything else. And so it's really a divide and conquer strategy. And I think when and if you do see the Prime pipeline chart, I think you'll see that it did work. It's pretty unusual structure, but actually we are indeed focusing on different diseases. And I think that's going to maximize the potential both of the technology so that both parties can use it, but also of the disease landscape that we're covering with our various technology platforms. So we have a value called fearless innovation, 
I think that's really important. We mean that on the science, of course, and on the clinical medicine, but we equally mean it on the business side. We want to be innovative in business. And I think that was a very creative deal. We've done some others that are creative, and I think we'll do more in the future, all to try to continue to get access to new things, keep building this integrated platform where we have as many types of editing as we need, as many types of deliveries we need, and of course, manufacturing that brings it all together under one roof so that whenever a new disease comes up, we have the tools we need to treat it. Or if a partner wants to do something, we can give them everything they need to do that as well. So two things come up while you're talking. One is obviously when you talk about interesting deals and innovation and being fearless, it makes me think of your Pfizer deal. And then I think obviously the other one would be the Verb deal. We actually recently had Sake on the podcast, so we got to delve into exactly how that deal is formatted and why Verb chose to use base editing, even though they've done head-to-head comparisons of other potential modalities that they could have used. So I think maybe it's worth it just to talk a little bit about each of those deals, just in terms of how strategic it was on your part and the benefits. Those both are, I think, perfect segues from the last conversation. So maybe I'll start with Verb because that came first. So that was a case where They are the world leaders in cardiology and genetics. That is the dream team right there. And so they were starting up Verve already. They wanted to go do editing, this one-time cure. And again, many of the things I said before about adherence, I have Verve in my head. It's a perfect example. There are other places that'll be important, but preventing a heart attack in 30 years, that is the perfect example where we could really change outcomes and reduce mortality but it's gonna be hard to get somebody to take a chronic medicine for 30 years just to get that. So a one-time intervention might be very powerful. So they were really interested in getting all the different tools under one roof for those edits. And obviously they had nuclease rights, Cas9 doing the cutting, but from us, we actually gave them a different nuclease, Cas12B and base editing. And they did the bake-off and just as they would have said, I think base editing ends up being the winner for a variety of reasons. It's actually very potent. I think that it's something that's quite important to realize Obviously, that a much more pure edit, we're getting just the single base change without the indel pattern, which is more random. And we believe that could mean that it's also safer over time. But of course, that's something we'll have to learn. But I think generally lacking the double-stranded break, not having any chance for chromosomal alterations at the target site, all good. And so they're moving forward with base editing. It looks great. In that case, they obviously weren't going to pay us a lot of money or equity. They were just getting started to get to the technology. Instead, we benefit on the back end. And so we have a opt-in right to 50% of the U.S. on at least the programs that are in that deal, including the first two programs that they're developing. And it's a, of course, a very close collaboration and they're rocking and rolling. It looks great. So we're very excited about that. Can't wait to see more of that. We've used that feature in other deals as well, that opt-in structure. It's a way for us to not have to do the work ourselves, but still participate later in the value with our technology. And that's an important solution to the problem I was saying. You want to unlock as many things as possible with this technology platform, but there's still only so many things that Beam itself can do. And so how do I help more patients? How do I get this moving to more more people than we can build internally? The answer is this, but in doing so, I'd still like to have some of that downstream participation and commercial. And so that was a great way to do it. So then Pfizer, a different flavor. So we really, until Pfizer had not done, despite doing a lot of deals, we hadn't done the more traditional pharma partnering where you get a lot of cash and you give some targets over to pharma. We felt that actually some of the Gen 1 companies who had done those deals, they were too broad. I mean, you get a little bit of money, but you give away all of an organ or 10 targets or what have you, and you really don't get a lot of participation downstream, maybe a little bit. And it can work out. Like CRISPR Vertex deal, I think is a good deal for both parties. That's worked out well. But overall, I think those deals have been expensive, if you will. And so we didn't do them, preferring to keep everything wholly owned within our pipeline. 
But at this point, we were again trying to solve the problem of how do I do more with my limited capacity? And Pfizer gave us the chance to do that. And so there were targets that we like, but we weren't doing ourselves that Pfizer was interested in. And they were very motivated to get into base editing because they had just built all these capabilities with mRNA and LNP for the COVID vaccines. So they had already done the analysis that editing was the next place they wanted to be with those capabilities because you have a short-term transient mRNA delivery for a long-term effect, now to the gene edit. And then within editing, they wanted to be in base editing. And so in addition, that deal takes advantage, not just of the base editing piece, but also the delivery side where you have these LNPs. Of course, we can go to the liver, that's happening. We have a lead program for the liver with them. But then the other places we're going to look to go is the CNS and the muscle. And so it takes advantage of this platform we have to screen LNPs in vivo using DNA barcodes to try to identify, are there LNP formulations that can go beyond the liver? So this is a sort of secret at Beam, but coming out more and more that actually we're investing as aggressively on the delivery side and on innovation there as we are on the editing side. And this is an example of that. And I think that deal really was the culmination of both sides of it. So there, of course, we just get a lot of cash. It's $300 million, allows us to invest aggressively across all those programs and on those capabilities and that delivery platform. And then we again do have an opt-in right on any one program at the end of phase one, two, to participate in a third of the worldwide commercialization. So very exciting structure. And that deal has been a pleasure to be a part of from the beginning. So some context that I think is interesting about that deal is that if you think about it, there are 30,000 pathogenic transition mutations that are going to be fixed with base editing, or that can be fixed with base editing. And so the idea is if you take just the top 1%, let's say just 300, you give each 100 million upfront, which is what you got in the Pfizer deal, then that's a $30 billion potential revenue in upfront cash. So without even actually doing any of the work, just the upfront cash could be 30 billion if you take just the top 1%. So I think that just for me frames it in a way where you can just see what kind of opportunity this actually could really be. I certainly agree. I think the opportunity here is vast. And I would even just make the point that even that analysis, now I think these were high value targets, so I think maybe I wouldn't go right to that math, but I think it's on the right track. But even that analysis, you're simply talking about the precise corrections. And I do think a lot of people get a little bit locked into thinking about Beam as the point mutation repair company. And that is true, but it's actually, if you even look at our pipeline today, it's only half of what we're doing. Because if you think about it, what I think about base editing as is a highly efficient genome modification tool. Every single base in the genome has either an A or a C on it. Those are the two editable bases using deaminases. And so every base in the genome can be toggled. And so any base that has function, we can change that function. So we can change splicing, we can silence genes, we can activate genes, we can modify proteins, we can change signaling through proteins. I think we are in the really early days of thinking about how to use these things. And those strategies are also universal strategies. It doesn't matter what mutation specifically you have, they would work. And so I think that base editing is going to be used very diversely, I think. And our job is to explore all of those different flavors. So for sure, fixing those point mutations target by target is a huge part of what we do. But I actually think it'll almost be the minority of it once we start to really tap into all of these other ways of using base editors for the long term. We can go even more high level, right? So if you think industry-wide, gene editing, gene therapy, market cap, in our big ideas deck in 2022, this is what we said, but we said it could scale up 54% compound annual growth rate from roughly 130 billion to 1.1 trillion by 2026. So that's obviously giving it even more color, but also more high level. Curious if you had any thoughts on that, the market opportunity in general. 
it's vast for sure. We're pretty humble. So I think just keeping one step in front of the other is also an important point. But we see all those opportunities for sure. The way I like to think about that from a total addressable market perspective is what percentage of the therapeutics budget today goes towards one-time therapies? And the answer is less than 1% is probably the answer. We could look it up. What is it going to be in 10 to 15 years? Is it 20%? Is it 50%? Then within that, there's been a big shift towards editing from gene therapy. I think that is a mega trend that's happening. And I think it makes sense. Rather fix the problem in the endogenous location within the gene. And then within editing, I think there's going to be a big push towards base editing and some of these other types of next-gen approaches where if possible, you'd rather avoid the double-stranded break and we can do more using that than others. And so we think there's just many layers of tailwinds pushing us in this direction. When I think about unlocking value, look at companies like Alnylam, $20 billion plus or minus company based on just a few approvals so far on clearly a platform-based approach that can create many more medicines to follow. And that is all based on a single modality RNAi going to a single organ, which is liver. And what we're trying to do is have many of those potential franchises grow in parallel. Hematology effort, obviously, starting with sickle, but we see huge opportunities in hematology beyond that, particularly as we fix conditioning, fix transplant, and even can potentially deliver in vivo to blood cells. Think about immunology, cell therapy, editing are going to be very good together forever and just going to grow and change. And so there's a ton of opportunity there. Obviously, we have a CAR-T product moving to the clinic soon and many, many more things to follow. And then in vivo, liver for us is hugely important. We've got several programs now with many more on deck. That's that kind of alnylam opportunity. And then again, we're knocking on the door of other organs and in vivo delivery to those. And so almost any one of those could be a hugely valuable company if it played out. And our goal is to unlock the opportunity across all of them. Maybe just because you mentioned Alnylam, just to highlight, I think this was announced in November, John Maragori is going to be on the Beam board. So just from a strategic perspective, maybe it would be great to hear what was the thought there and a little bit more about that. John was such a natural fit and I've been chasing him for a couple of years and he was busy. One of the crazy things about building a company like this is there are not that many companies you can look at as what you're aspiring to do it gets pretty thin. And so Alnylam is one of them. John and that team really did it. They started from scratch with a Nobel Prize winning technology. They developed it over the course of 10 to 20 years. They learned some hard lessons. One of the things that we've all learned from the Alnylam experience is delivery matters. And you can spend a lot of time doing things that are theoretically interesting, but if you can't get it to that tissue, it's not going to get you anywhere. And they did almost a reboot about halfway through about 10 years ago saying, you know what, we're getting clearly to the liver let's focus there. Where are the diseases we can impact? And from there, everything happened. And back to all the stuff we talked about in the beginning about the efficiencies of genetic medicine platforms, there was one new target that they published with Regeneron and NASH. And when the target was published, they also announced the development candidate. Think about how fast that goes. You get the target, you plug it into the computer, you print out the RNAi and you test it and it's there. And then in terms of the risk, once it's worked once, it will work again and again. I think they've gone five for five or six for six on pivotal trials in the last couple of years. I mean, think about that. The normal training in farm industries, you say, well, with pivotal trial, you might have a third chance of success. And if you do six of them, you would get a couple that would work at best, right? No. Once the technology works, the biology is clear. It works again and again. It becomes very repeatable. So it's really changing the math in terms of how we do drug development. And so long-winded way of saying that I think we love the analogy for sure. And I think there's a lot of similarities in what we're trying to build, 
We actually have several on island folks at Beam, including our chief medical officer, Amy Simon, came from on island. In the early days, she did their PCSK9 drug that's now with Novartis and then did the Porphyria program from discovery all the way through approval. So definitely great to have John on board. I will also say nice to have a CEO on the board has been there before on some of the things that I face, but in our board in general has been dynamite and continues to be a real strength of the company. One of the things you said is delivery matters, and we keep touching on it a little bit, but maybe even just to go a little bit deeper, one of the things that I guess I've also been thinking about this week, in addition to the TTR data, is AAV9. So we know the FDA met to discuss safety for AAV9, but I also think about the children that are in the DMD trials, Sarepta, Pfizer, other companies that are doing the DMD trials now. And I think about, we're seeing that there's cross-reactivity. And so if you've been treated with AV9, or if you've ever been exposed to it before, maybe for babies, for SMA, if the mother's been exposed to it and the baby has the mother's antibodies, this idea that maybe you can't get redosed is really scary because a lot of those therapies aren't one-time therapies. And so I keep thinking about what do we do about this issue with delivery and working with several other people to kind of think about this problem a little bit more broadly. And so it really resonates with me when we think about this issue of delivery. And so one of the papers that have come out this year, and I feel like there are many, Von Zang had a few on these new delivery vehicles. Also, David Liu's lab, I think, had one recently on EVLPs for potentially as a delivery mechanism for base editors. Just curious of your thoughts, maybe a little bit more broadly on delivery, EVLPs, LMPs, VLPs. Yeah. So one of our first principles is there is no perfect magic bullet on delivery. There's not going to be one technology to rule them all. And that's the only thing you'll ever use. But for each one, it has to be good enough to work. And then if it has liabilities, we want to fix those liabilities as fast as we can. That's the way I approach it. And so something like sickle, we can do this amazing thing in cells. We can cure the sickle cell directly, but you're still doing a transplant. Transplants are expensive and intensive and risky for patients. And so we don't want to be satisfied just with having potentially the best editor. We want to fix the transplant too, because that's part of getting it to the right outcome. And so we're investing a lot in conditioning as well as in vivo delivery to cut out the transplant altogether. Those would be the steps to improve on the patient experience, even from that initial exciting breakthrough of curing patients. And as we do, it's going to expand the number of patients we can access ultimately. That's why you do it. In cell therapy, same thing. We've had a lot of autologous CAR-Ts. We need to make them allogeneic, much more scalable and exciting. And again, could that have an in vivo stage as well in the market? Maybe. So I think that's very exciting. Lipid nanoparticles, we like a lot. They're synthetic to make, which means they're reproducible in manufacturing. That gives them lower cost of goods. You can redose them, don't really have much of a packaging capacity limitation, don't certainly have pre-existing antibodies to deal with, and they're transient in terms of their payload. So a lot to like there. And so that's one of the reasons why we're investing so heavily there. Obviously, for the liver, we think that's going to be plug and play, and we don't really see any need to do better. I think the LMP to the liver looks really good, but we want to take that to other organs as well. So then viral, AV works, but there are many issues with AV, and I think we've been public about that. If it's your only option, it's a good option, better than nothing, and it will definitely work. But the issue of pre-existing immunity, so some patients will not be able to get it even once. You certainly can't redose it for the reasons you mentioned. I think the tropism, although people have been working on tropism for a long time, it just doesn't seem like it's gotten a lot better. And I don't know how easy it is to make it a lot better at this stage. And so we'll see. 
it obviously has a fixed capacity limit and you know our machinery is pretty big and so that's a problem and so we have to do two AVs, which works by the way but it requires double the manufacturing that's all manufacturing is also very complicated i would say and so for those reasons i think on the viral side although we do some AV work we are also interested in the next generation and so we're actually working on some novel viral viral like particle technologies ourselves and then for sure the types of things that bung and david's labs presented and others i think are welcome new ideas and we'll move the field forward. So I expect that for the editing field, we will over time move into other kinds of viral delivery platforms beyond AAV and that that will just join these other modalities in terms of giving us a toolbox to get to whatever tissue we need to at any time. So thinking about the broader toolbox, the vectors, the delivery mechanism, the CRISPR, or I guess you don't necessarily need to use a CRISPR. We've seen that in papers too for base editing, but in general, thinking about all of these diverse parts, I can't help but think about the IP situation, especially with the most recent update that we got, I think it was a week or two ago now. Just to give very short background for anyone who doesn't know, originally there were three CRISPR companies, Intellia, CRISPR, and Editas. Intellia and CRISPR were co-founded by Nobel laureate winners, Emmanuel Chapontier for CRISPR, Jennifer Doudna for Intellia, and then their IP comes from ERS Genomics and UC Berkeley, respectively. But Editas received its IP through Harvard, Broad, and John knows this all very well. <laughs> but this week or last week, we saw that there was a court ruling. It was in Harvard, Broad's favor, and it was on the editing of eukaryotic cells, which is anything with a nucleus. At ARC, how we see it is that we think each of the companies now has something, a portion of the IP that the others are needing or wanting. And so we think cross-licensing will be likely. We've seen tons of stuff about this in the media this week. We've seen that the University of California has said in a statement that they may consider their options in terms of if or how they will appeal this decision. But I'm curious, John, from your seat, what this decision means to you. And of course, we also know that there is a deal that you have with Editas on the CRISPR IP. So just really curious how you felt about the ruling, just your overall impression, how you think this affects the field more broadly. I would maybe just start by saying that I think it is in everyone's interest for that all to end, <laughs> for licensing to happen. It's such a negative sum game, and I think all the participants would agree with that statement, by the way. So hopefully people will find a way to resolve it for sure. So for us, we care a bit about it to the extent that we use Cas9 in our base editors. Then there is IP that may be relevant that we want to have. It's not the main IP for base editing. That's a whole different layer. And we were fortunate on that front that base editing really only emerged at Harvard in the lab of David Liu and didn't emerge simultaneously at Broden Berkeley. I mean, that's just sort of quirk of history a little bit. And that layer is much cleaner. We were under stealth for a year getting IP under one roof because of the learnings from the first generation issues. And we didn't want to go through that again. So sort of on that Cas9 front, we did this deal with Editas, as you know. And so we have an exclusive option to all of the Broad Harvard IP on Cas9 and some other families in the field of base editing. And that's exclusive even as Editas. Dean controls the Harvard Road side of the Cas9 puzzle for base editing, which I think puts us in a strong position. All that said, I would, as of today, and I haven't done a lot of deeper analysis on this necessarily, but I think I would agree with your framing. I think that both parties clearly have patents that are potentially relevant. The ups and downs of prosecution and appeal in various regions will cause these sort of fortunes to rise and fall over time. But I'd be surprised if one party was completely wiped out between sometime in the next 10 years. And so 
Obviously on this one, it played in our favor because we have the exclusive access to this IP on the Harvard Broad side. That's good for us. But overall, I think it would be good to find a way to settle this. And the ironic thing is the patents may expire by the time any of the sales get settled. So, you know, we'll see. But at the end of the day, I think the other point is this is really defining which academic institutions makes a small single digit royalty on some of these drugs and what the proportion of that is. It, I don't think, has as much importance for the bigger picture, which is we have some amazing companies, amazing teams that are developing real medicines that are working and the technology is advancing really fast, if not faster than ever. And that's the more important big picture to watch. So I think two things you just highlighted that I think are really interesting. But one thing that I wanted to just mention quickly before is that I find this case super interesting. So I used to help review patents and I love the idea of patenting. I think it's really interesting because I just think it's so intricate and interesting. But what's most interesting about this case to me is that it's never going to happen again because in 2013, they changed the U.S. patent law. And so it used to be that it was first to invent and now it's first to file. So if this was not in 2012, if it was in 2013, things would be very different. And I think that's pretty interesting. And I don't know if you went back and looked at the case, but I also found it fascinating. All the notebook pages are there if anyone wants to see them from the lab, which I think gives you a real look into the lab, which is really, really cool. I'm fortunate enough to have been able to go to labs, work in labs. But I think if you don't have that context, it was really powerful for me. So I don't know if you felt the same way. It is fascinating. I mean, it is amazing to have that window into the quotes and the anecdotes and the lab pages and all of that. But as you said, we are now in a totally different regime where none of that will ever matter again, because it's only about did you get the filing on or not. Again, as fun as it is to look at those famous lab notebooks, I think it was actually a lot better, this new system. It's just a lot simpler. We should have an easy, simple way to say, you get that, you don't get that, you were first, fine, and then we all move on to making medicine. I think that patents are important, we want to protect innovation. We absolutely respect patents and respect innovation, and we think that's critical because you want to reward those who are the most innovative, but you want it to be simple and efficient and not create a big drag on the system and adjudicating who had the thought first or was that thought fully produced to practice over all these court battles, I think it's not where we should be focused. And just one of the other things you highlighted was the accelerated pace of innovation. So that's something that we've done some work on and have thought about a lot too. We highlighted this idea in our Big Ideas Deck 2022, so this year, but it was the idea that the pace of innovation is going so much faster. So exactly what you're talking about. And I thought maybe just could be helpful to contextualize some numbers around it. So we didn't really talk too much about this on this podcast, which is actually kind of interesting because when I first started doing podcasts on CRISPR, we used to talk a lot about zinc finger nucleases in talons, the differences between them. And it seems like we don't do that as much anymore, which is maybe a shift in where the technology is going and where we're seeing the most improvements. So I find that interesting. But also if you look at just the numbers, so it took zinc finger nucleases about eight years to go from discovery to the first human dose. And then CRISPR, it took less than half that time. So it was about three years. And so I just think that's interesting. And it shows just exactly what you're discussing and trying to show us, which is just that it's crazy. The early days for Beam, I would also go through the zinc finger talon heritage as well. And we didn't do it this time. I think the original debate was around what's the easiest, most efficient, and maybe most specific way to do editing. And so that really did come down to what is the format of the editor. And so CRISPR being targetable with an RNA sequence rather than being a whole protein construct you have to customize every time. That was a big breakthrough. 
And it was such a big breakthrough that it just completely took over. And now almost every lab that's going to do a knockout or a knock-in or something is going to use CRISPR over one of those tools. In a way, that debate is sort of over. It's not saying fingers and talons aren't still useful in some places, but by and large, the world has moved on to that. But what that whole debate was papering over was the edit was identical. There's no difference between a zinc finger nuclease making a cut in the gene and Cas9 making a cut in the gene. There's still a cut, and then the cell repairs it in exactly the same way. And so there wasn't anything to debate on that front. Whereas with base editing now, we've opened that whole side of things up to now a good scientific debate where it's like, well, what if you didn't have to make the cut? What if you could edit without cutting? And you could edit with a deaminase, and now we can do that. And then you have prime, and you're going to have transposases, and there's going to be lots of other flavors that come along. And suddenly, that's now the place where we need to start to debate. And I think that on many fronts, I think that base editing is continuing to win. It looks like it has a lot of advantages, and I think that's really exciting. There will be other phases of this debate as well. Delivery, I actually think, is another big one. If you can get to a tissue that no one else can get to, even if you had an inferior tool, that's going to be a superior product for patients. And so I think the ability to deliver and to manufacture these sorts of medicines is going to become an important factor. So ultimately, all of this has to come together. But as you noted, the pace is just increasing. We think about the base editing timeline all the time. The first publication was 16 and then in 17. So we're just over five years in, six years in to the whole field, and we're already going to reach the clinic soon. And the original CRISPR was only 10 years ago, right? So it's just incredible how much fast it's going. And it's because, back to the, this isn't small molecules, this is engineering. It's protein engineering and it's RNA engineering, but it is still engineering. You can hypothesize an improvement, you can rapidly prototype it, you can test it, you learn something, you iterate, and you do it again. And these are very clearly defined sequences for your editor or for your guide. And so it's actually not that big a solution space to test. And so we can do that very rapidly and unlock these increasingly exponential breakthroughs, I think. It's not only that we're getting better and better and better, but we're also able to address more diseases with all these new technologies. The edits may have been the same with zinc fingers or talons or the original CRISPR-Cas9, but we're also seeing that the better the technology is, that this pace of innovation that's going so much faster, but it's also that we can actually address more diseases to potentially cure or treat more patients, which is the most exciting part. Yes. Well, this then goes back to the challenge of how do you build a company in this environment? Because I think there's so much opportunity and there's so many different ways we could go. And it's almost overwhelming sometimes to think about all the degrees of freedom we have. And so it being our answer to that has been we like the diversification. We like lots of different kinds of bets that have different risk profiles. We're taking different editing strategies. Sometimes we're activating, we're inhibiting, we're correcting different delivery modalities for sure. And then that opens up all these very diverse places where we can go after that to help more patients. And so it will be a challenge to do everything that we can do. So we'll just prioritize and do the absolute, hopefully smartest and best experiments to move these programs as fast as we can. And then there will still be leftover opportunity that we can't tackle. And that would be where we will do this development or help put our technology in someone else's hands to move it along as well. And we just think there's such tremendous opportunity across the board. And as our platform gets deeper and more integrated, that only increases. Right. That's exciting. Okay. So I know that we have taken up a lot of your time. So just want to give you two very quick personal questions. The first one is, I know you love poker. It comes up in almost every one of our conversations. And you were just telling me about your poker getaway weekend. So I think we just need to know a little bit more. And then I was saying that 
everyone in biotech seems to love poker. So there's all these biotech poker games. And so I was just saying, I think it's great strategically that they're inviting people who've never played poker to partake in their poker games. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I think they're self-interested in inviting people who've never played poker to their poker games. I do love poker. It's true. I get together with some friends from graduate school still every year, and we play a lot of poker together. It is a lot of fun. I think the game, it really does speak to me in terms of this industry. It has taught me a lot because you have a certain amount of information in your starting hand and the board and what you're seeing from other people, but you certainly don't have all the information. And then you've got to manage your betting in such a way as to optimize your outcome. And I think of that as the investment, almost what I was just saying. We have a lot of capital, but we have so many ways to invest it and we have to be very careful. So we want to make the best decision we can to invest behind the things that have the highest chance of succeeding and the highest chance of winning against what else is out there because it is competitive. There are other people who are trying to treat these diseases as well. And we want to make sure we're investing behind the things that can win. And so it's been a fun hobby, I would say, but I do think there are some real analogies to the drug development business as well. Well, it seems like I keep getting pushed to learn how to play poker. So on our next call, I'm going to be like, okay, John, we have 30 minutes to talk about Beam and we're going to need another 30 so that we can go over my poker strategies. You got it. That would be really helpful. And then the last personal question I just wanted to ask you was about Twitter. So we just, as I mentioned, had Saik on from Verve. And of course, Saik is also very active on Twitter. We asked him a little bit about why he does it. What benefit does he feel it actually accomplishes for him? And I guess... I would think about the same questions for you. As you know, we're pretty active on Twitter as well, but I think it's great. Sometimes I'll pose a question just about a thought we're having or something about base editing, or even sometimes I won't even pose a question, but someone will write a question about base editing underneath something we've posted. And I find you're so quick and responsive. And I think it's really helpful to investors who are trying to learn and pick up on the space and not just investors, but I think there are a lot of general enthusiasts. And I think that Gene editing is a complex topic to understand. I think I've told a couple of people that CRISPR, if you ever see it in the lab, looks like water in a test tube, and it was like their minds were blown. So I think it's so helpful that CEOs and other people are on Twitter trying to help other people understand the industry more broadly. So just curious about what you enjoy about it and what you get out of being on Twitter and being active on it. I benefit greatly from Twitter. This is a two-way exchange, at least, if not, I'm benefiting a lot more. It is an amazing tool. I mean, the dialogue happening in real time on all these major issues from incredibly smart people, both people you know, journalists or executives or scientists or whatever, and then people you don't know, whether it be investors or general public or what have you, there is absolutely high signal to noise ratio for me. And it's, of course, mixed in with I'm trying to keep up with geopolitics and what's happening in the economy and things like that. And you can kind of get it all in one place. BioTwitter is what we call the biotech community on there. And I think it's been amazing, that community. And it really does benefit me to engage. I have to moderate my own Twitter use. I think I'm probably a little too addicted to it. I try to manage how much I do. But no, I think that exchange has been great. I think of my role, obviously, leading the company, helping guide what we're doing, but also it is to communicate. And there's a lot of different stakeholders that we need to communicate to. And whether that be help them understand Beam as an investment opportunity or as a company, but also help them understand the medicines that we're making, the diseases we're trying to treat, and the role we, I think, can play in society. Because the other thing to not forget is this is world-changing, somewhat scary stuff. Gene editing is a big change in humanity, and our capability to do it is going to be very important. We're sort of lucky in a way that for something that is so profoundly important, 
we're starting in a place that is everyone is really aligned. We want to help patients who have a severe disease or help children and make them better. And you bring that to the table and everyone's going to say, yes, how do we help you do that? And so that's been great. But over time, we will do more common diseases. We're going to prevent diseases that, that aren't even with you yet. We're going to have much more sophisticated therapies, sophisticated cell therapies, interventions. So over time, I think society is going to need to really come to grips with this and understand it and get comfortable with it. We need to be there explaining it all along the way. And so I think that is a really important role that we have as stewards of technology, but everyone in the community who's generating these conversations is playing so that we can make it clear, make it understandable to everyone. I think that's a testament to you and your character and you as a CEO, but we strive to hear that from others as well. And I think we've covered a lot of ground here, the CRISPR IP, base editing, prime editing, a little bit of zinc finger and talons, but I guess that's a shift of the way the world's working, vectors, et cetera. It's been really, really interesting. I know I've learned a lot, so I really appreciate your time, John. I could probably speak to you for another four hours, so I won't put you through that, but really, really appreciate the time and always great to connect and looking forward to the next one. Thanks so much, Ali. Anytime. Really enjoyed it. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.